the devastating storm of a few weeks ago has really kind of got me more interest than ever, and I always have had a lot of interest, in energy. Now there's a new coalition called 30 Million Solar Homes. Okay, it's a national coalition, and it's made up of about 230 organizations. The goal is to add enough rooftop and community solar energy to power 30 million homes across our nation in the next three to five years. That would be equivalent, folks, to one in every four homes in America. That's a pretty big initiative. The major focus on the 30 million solar homes initiative is to rapidly and massively scale programs that help low-income families benefit from solar power. The coalition lists 15 federal policy initiatives, including making solar tax incentives more equitable, providing more reliable low-income energy assistance through solar energy, supplementing low-income weatherization assistance with solar energy, and specifically funding solar projects in marginalized communities where it was probably very limited before now. The federal government spends billions already every year to help families pay for their energy bills, even if it has nothing to do with solar. But these efforts only serve less than a fifth of the eligible population. Funding rooftop and community solar access for these households would provide long-term financial relief and reduce the need for annual energy bill assistance from all of us. The more than 230 organizations in the coalition represent organizations that are focused on energy equity, climate, business environment, faith, and public health. The coalition estimates that executing the plan would create 3 million good-paying jobs, lower energy bills by at least $20 billion a year, and reduced annual greenhouse gas emissions by, oh, maybe as much as 2%. Over the coming months, the campaign will seek to educate lawmakers and, of course, now the Biden-Harris administration about the benefits of distributing solar energy. The vision outlined by this coalition is an ambitious one, to say the least, But boy, if everybody could get behind it, it's a win-win for everyone. Maybe I should have said win-to-win instead of win-win. So the next little factoid here is, is the U.S. offshore wind finally happening? Uh, I keep referring back to our storm. We had a wind problem here in the state, a big one. But it was human error. You can't blame the wind. We opted to... Winterize windmill. Come on, there's windmills working in Norway more than any other place almost on earth. Windmills do fine in cold weather if you take care of the windmills. Whose fault was that? Whoever was in charge dropped the ball. As a part of that, offshore wind capacity has been growing really, really rapidly, especially in Europe and China. We haven't been so cool at it yet. Globally, there is now 30 gigawatts of offshore wind, and industry experts predict that it will be over 200 gigawatts of capacity in the next six or eight years. Meanwhile, the U.S., us, has only a small couple of projects with about five turbines off Rhode Island and another one with two turbines off the state of Virginia. After many years of battles with determined opponents, false starts, uh, under-supported Regulatory struggles and other hurdles. The U.S. offshore industry finally appears to be poised to, pardon the pun, to take off. 
a combination of significant commitments by power companies to purchase offshore wind power, now some support finally from the current administration, and billions of dollars in investments are creating a newfound momentum. New York, New Jersey, Virginia, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Maryland have all collectively committed to getting at least 30 gigawatts of offshore energy in the next three to five years, 10 at the most. That's enough power to run 20 million of our homes. We're back to a good percentage. One in five homes can be run by wind power from offshore if it's necessary. Among the first major offshore installations to be completed in the next, it'll take about two more years, is off of uh, the uh, what they call the Vineyard Wind. That's a big fight by some of the politicians that didn't want it there because it's 15 miles off of Martha's Vineyard. Another wind farm 60 miles east of New York's Montauk Point, and a third one 15 miles off of Atlantic City, New Jersey. And there will be a fourth one start in a year or so, another one off the coast of Virginia. Offshore wind projects will create nearly 40,000 new jobs just in that particular part of the country. There is still some opposition from elements of the commercial fishing industry and from some coastal residents. However, with state and federal governments committing to reducing carbon emissions and rapidly reducing regulatory barriers, with the price of offshore wind continuing to get lower and lower, most observers agree that the U.S. offshore wind industry is finally on the verge of really getting going, and it is one of the most consistent energy sources that we have easily available. And now, unfortunately, a little not-so-good news for you poor allergy sufferers. According to a new study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, in addition to the many hardships that climate change is causing around the world, is the fact that it is making allergy seasons worse. Researchers found that there is a strong link between planetary warming and pollen seasons. The combination of warming air and higher levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has caused North American pollen seasons since 1990 to start some 20 days earlier on average and have about 21% more pollen, a fifth more pollen. The most pronounced effects were seen great in Texas. Next is the Midwest and the Southeast. The effects were less obvious in the northern United States, including New England and the Great Lakes area. The greatest pollen increases came from trees as opposed to grasses and weeds, which we really suffer from here. Is the, come on, the, the trees, what we call pollen fever or cedar fever is getting worse here, folks. Allergies do not just trigger sniffles and sneezes. They have serious effects on health in the form of asthma and other respiratory conditions. Studies have shown that students do less well in school during peak pollen season. Of special concern at the moment is that high pollen periods have been associated with greater susceptibility, listen to this, to respiratory viruses. Ah, COVID-19. The U.S. has nearly 25 million People with asthma and 19 million adults report hay fever over any given year. Research suggests that the early onset of pollen season correlates with a higher risk of hospitalization for asthma and other breathing problems. There are far fewer pollen monitoring stations than there are monitoring stations for particulate pollutants and and air quality in general. 
So as the climate warms, we need to pay a little bit more attention to pollen as an airborne pollutant that really can cause health hazards. Even though I call the show Organic Matters, it's supposed to be more about gardening, but it's all moved into the climate change and the, these, that tremendous storm we went through. It all ties together, folks. If you're into organic living, organic gardening, trying to live naturally, trying to live healthier, it all ties together. But sometimes things that happen in this state is so unusual and so strange to me. I'm trying to protect I guess what we call our world, our nature. And then the state of Texas right now moves to kill plans, okay, that we're going to help to ban natural gas in some areas as we move forward into other energy sources. Texas moved to stop the city of Austin and others from imposing uh, a ban on natural gas in new homes and buildings. The latest salvo in the gas industry's bid to protect itself, they claim, from local climate regulations. Give me a break. The Texas House of Representatives passed a bill Tuesday that would bar cities and towns from restricting natural grass hookups in the construction or utility services. Get out of my business. I mean, what, we always say we want smaller government, then the state of Texas tries to tell you what to do everywhere in this state. The measure is being passed along with a series of bills designated to prevent a repeat of last month's catastrophic blackouts, which it has nothing to do with. It's another uh, power grab so that they can keep in control of what you use for your energy. This particular uh, administration, uh, Abbott, has, has got a, a problem with Austin anyway because Austin's uh, not a little, a lot more progressive than this man is. He's uh, hung up in the ancient times somewhere back before, you know, we, we learned a little bit more about what it takes to have clean air, uh, clean water, and a good, healthy living environment. This move comes after Austin uh, weighed a proposal to phase out the use of fossil fuels as a part of the city's climate plan. As I guess I've probably already said a few times on this show this very week, it seems to keep coming up. We've got to move on. We can't keep locking to the old systems we had. They're not going to work forever. Are we going to be running out or are we going to stop using petroleum tomorrow or next year or maybe in the next decade? Not altogether. But if you don't move forward, you're not standing still, you're going backwards. I put out several times how you should have set your garden up and gotten it ready. Now's time to use it. Let me give you a real quick list of plants, both herbs and vegetables, that you can plant right now. This is it. April's here, folks. This is the, uh, the if not the best, one of the best times of year, certainly the best in the springtime for us to plant in this part of the country. And the way of herbs, which I've learned, I actually now grow more herbs than ever instead of less. I can't believe a little ounce or two of basil in a regular store costs three bucks or four now. So it's time to put in your basils, catmints, comfries, fennel if you use it. Most people don't plant horseradish here, but it will do fine. Get some horseradish. Oregano, thyme, rosemary, all those regular herbs you use every week if you happen to be a, a real person that cooks at your own home. Peppermint, lemongrass, bay laurel, and you can leave it there permanently if you do it right. Bay is always good. As far as plants you're going to eat that you want to consume, perfect time for Swiss chard. 
Get your corn in the ground. I need to tell you a little bit more about how to put corn in. Maybe I'll do that later in this show or, or next week to make it pop to, to, in order to make it pollinate, folks, you can't, you really can't. You should do it in circles. You should do it in groups, not in straight lines, but that's about what you need to know. Cucumber time. Malabar spinach. If you haven't ever had it, it's a whole different form. It's really not a spinach, but it tastes and acts like one and is really hardy and, and very, very easy to grow. Mustards, peppers. Eh, you can put other things like squash and pumpkins in, but uh, I put my pumpkins in a little later if I'm going to have them for the fall. Summer and winter squash, of course. Tomatillos. And incidentally, in case of tomatillos, unlike tomatoes, they're pretty easy. Tomatillos, you need to have a few of them. They, they need to have that cross-pollination. And, of course, tomatoes, beans, and your, and your, your uh, melons, uh, cantaloupes. It's not a bad time at all to stick those in, at least short term. Do not, pr- if you've got red oaks, folks, uh, and in live oaks, unless they're damaged, uh, don't, uh, don't just prune them. They're, they're pretty hardy to it, and yes, uh, you know, red oaks and live oaks need to be painted or sprayed the minute you cut the limbs off if you are going to prune them. Sorry, folks, run out of time without knowing it, so enjoy the show. Thanks for staying tuned to Organic Matters.